Special thanks to our newest sponsor. Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. What you're about to hear originally aired in April of 2019. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. But the notion of cheap steel from China, I think is a misnomer. Uh, There's the perception that cheap stainless is magnetic and... I want to point out that that is uh, a fallacy. If you jump in a tank to clean something and you've got dirt and debris on your shoes, that type of scratching on the surface can remove the passive film. This week on the show, demystifying the passivation of stainless steel. John Palmer and Ashton Lewis help us separate fact from fiction, do a little myth busting, and pick up some pointers for keeping your stainless steel healthy. All right, we've got a couple of former metalheads here on the show today. John, a lot of folks know you from your publications and other work you've done in brewing, but you had a whole career in metal before all of that, right? Yeah, um, I was a lead singer for a heavy metal band, I wish. Nice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, I worked um, in aerospace for a number of years uh, on the Space Station Project as a metallurgist and then later for 3M. Uh, corporation in their uh, medical devices division uh, as a metallurgist, heat treating, uh, which involved both careers involved both stainless alloys and aluminum alloys. All right. And then Ashton, you're slinging ingredients these days, but previously put in a lot of years at Mueller, a company that's been making brewery tanks for quite some time. Yeah, I came to Mueller in 1997 and I actually came in as a kind of a you know brewing guy 
from UC Davis, and I worked there for 20 years. And over the years at Mueller, I learned a lot about stainless steel and took a particular interest in how breweries could either damage stainless steel or use it properly to avoid damage. And passivation is certainly one of those topics that is near and dear to the hearts of many brewers. All right. Well, let's start off by defining stainless steel, which can be a little tricky because everybody's got a slightly different recipe for stainless, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, stainless is actually a, a group of alloys, um, uh, not dissimilar to dogs in that regard. Um, you have um, roughly three groups. You have the martensitic alloys, the ferritic alloys. Uh, and austenitic. Uh, most people are familiar with the austenitic series. That's your 300 series, which are nickel chromium. And it's th- those alloys are commonly used for cookware, um, stainless steel tanks, and so on. Uh, ferritic series are your 400, no, sorry, 500 series. Um, and those are uh, stainless steel flatware like you get in the cafeteria. Your Martensitic series is the 400 series, um, and uh, that's often used for knife blades and, and shears and things like that. And then there's a, a fourth group, uh, Duplex, which is actually a combined alloy of ferritic and austenitic that's able to exist as um, as two phases, and that's why they, they call it Duplex stainless steel. And uh, that stainless steel is is particularly useful in that it uh, is much more resistant to stress corrosion cracking, which is a common problem in uh, stainless steels. Unfortunately, there's some cheap, low-quality stainless out there in our industry. What are the corners that get cut when someone produces cheap stainless? And what is it that a brewer is paying for when they spring for the good stuff? Backing up for a second, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and do a lay lay definition of stainless steel. So the the basic stainless steel definition that a lot of brewers might find helpful is that it's an alloy that contains iron and chromium, and the minimum chromium percentage to have stainless steel is about 10.5 percent chromium, with the remainder of the alloy being iron. That that is fundamentally the the basic definition of stainless steel, and the the stainless steel, as we know it today, has taken a long, long path in history. But the uh, the first references to combinations of iron and chromium that resisted attack from corrosion date back to 1820 in England, uh, Stoddard and Faraday, and then uh, Bartier in France in 1821. And there was a really, really nice quote uh, attributed to uh, Carl Zaff, who was a metallurgist. And in 1960, in a book called Stainless Steel, The Miracle Metal, he wrote, starting from rust, men have produced something which looks like platinum and resists resists chemical attack like gold. And yet a square inch can support a quarter of a million pounds. This is the crowning achievement of metallurgy. So stainless steel is kind of a simple, simple alloy with a lot of different variations and a lot of different applications. Yeah, that's that's a very good, very good point. Um, Another aspect of stainless steel is, uh, especially in the 300 series, going back to your question, John, um, is carbon content. And in 300 series stainless, uh, carbon content is often 
and what you're uh, paying to reduce. Um, the higher the car- carbon content in a 300 series stainless steel, the poorer the weldability of it will be. And so when you're welding up a tank that, um, that doesn't have low carbon, and this is often designated by the L suffix on the alloy name, such as 304L or 316L, um, that extra carbon causes carbide precipitation at the edges of the weld and um, very poor corrosion resistance in that area because that chromium has been, the protective chromium has been sucked away uh, from the uh, from the alloy itself, resulting in uh, segregation. Very good. Any other watchouts for brewers who might be in the market to purchase some stainless steel? Well, I think I th- you you got to look at the specification um, and know which alloy you're buying because um, if you're simply buying austenitic stainless. Uh, and they don't specify the alloy, then it could be, you know, a 200 series alloy, which is a uh, no nickel alloy. It's much cheaper than the 300 series. Um, And there you're using uh, manganese and and nitrogen as your um, uh, austenite stabilizers um, instead of nickel. Um, Similar strength, similar workability, but... Um, different corrosion resistance and and less corrosion resistant to uh, many of the chemicals that the uh, brewing equipment would see. So it's what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that it's not simply cheap stainless; it's different stainless. Have you guys run into either of you run into any of that stuff out in the field? Well, backing up a second on that, the notion of cheap stainless. So you know to Further, what John is saying, when I think of the cost of stainless steel, it's almost like going to a, a restaurant and ordering a meal and paying a la carte by the ingredients that are used to to come up with the you know the the dish that you're buying. So the the main types of stainless steel used in the brewing industry are really quite limited. There's there's 304, 304L, and then 316, 316L, and then there's some other alloys that are sometimes used, duplex grades like 2204. And uh, I'm sorry, 2205 and exotic steels for breweries would be something like AL6XN, which is a high molly steel. But for the most part, you're paying, you're really paying for nickel and, and molly. And 304 doesn't have any molly. It's, it's only expensive ingredient really is nickel. And then 316 contains a little bit more nickel, but it's, it has molybdenum, which is different than 304. Um, but the notion of cheap steel from China, I think, is a misnomer. And I've been out of stainless steel now for a little over two years. But when I was at the Paul Mueller Company, we did look at the cost of stainless steel from China to see if you know how it differed from the price we were paying for steels that were domestically sourced. And the truth is, is that there is not a lot of difference in cost of the, the raw material. In fact, for a U.S. manufacturer to import steel from China, oftentimes is more expensive than domestic steel because of the cost of freight. The thing that separates equipment made in other countries from equipment that's manufactured in the United States is the cost of labor. That, that really is the cost difference between so-called cheap equipment from Asia and more expensive equipment from North America. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, well, I guess let's get into some of the passivation stuff now. So when we talk about passivation, we're trying to create a passive surface or layer. What exactly is a passive surface? 
Well, it's the it's the uh, oxides that form on the surface of the metal. Um, in the case of plain iron or low or carbon steel, um, that oxide layer that forms on the surface of the steel is called rust, and it it doesn't form any kind of barrier. Um, once that rust starts, it can keep on rusting beneath it. But in the case of uh, stainless steel, you have a combination of uh, chromium oxides and nickel oxides um, on the surface. And those oxides uh, do, not, do not propagate. They don't penetrate beneath the surface. So they, they form a surface barrier. Um, and so what you're doing when, we're, when we talk about passivating stainless steel is we're providing a clean metal surface that allows these uh, passive oxide layers and, and barrier oxide layers to instantly form with contact with the air. Um, you don't have to wait periods of time. It, it just happens. The, uh, so th then, then you can start talking about degrees of passivation um, you can use acids uh, for example to uh, modify the surface of the of the part um, you know etch away some of the the uh, less corrosion resistant phases of the stainless steel um, to make a, a chromium rich surface that is more passive than the initial surface. But we're talking about small differences, really, maybe 15% improvement in terms of, uh, you know, a, a salt test. All right, let's get into the specifics of how a brewer needs to go about creating that passive layer. One of, the, one of the fundamental things that needs to happen with any passivation me method is to begin with clean steel. So most passivation methods begin by, you know, cleaning the metal, which oftentimes is just to remove oils and, and debris that might be remaining from fabrication. So a lot of times on, on new steel, there, there are um, either oils from lubrication used in fabrication or there are adhesive films that are used to um, protect the steel during shipment, oftentimes PVC-type plastic. And those, those, adhes those films are held to the stainless steel with different ad adhesives, so those film residues have to be removed. Um, you want to talk about some of the other things that are used, John, after the, the tank is cleaned? Sure. Um, yeah, so you, as he says, you, you have to get the, the, clean, the stainless clean um, to you know, provide oxygen access for this passive layer to form. Uh, an oil on the surface would be an oxygen barrier. And so what you would end up with is an electrochemical difference between the passive area and then this unpassive area next to it. And that's where you'd get your corrosion is at that interface. So um, the ways that you can uh, achieve passivation are, one, to use a you know, strong uh, detergent or caustic to, you know, fully clean the steel, uh, thoroughly rinse it, rinse it and get good um, uh, she sheeting action, you know, of your rinse water. You want to see that sheet down the steel rather than bubbling or forming droplets, um, you know, full wetting. And that indicates you've got a clean surface. Um, then that, that surface on exposure to the air will be passive. 
Um, as I was saying, and Ashton saying, you can modify that surface chemistry by the use of acids. Now, nitric acid is the most common passivating acid. Um, it's been in use for, you know, 50 years or more. And uh, it reduces the iron-rich phases at the surface in favor of and leaving behind more chromium-rich phases. And thereby boosts the passivity of that surface by by a small but significant uh, uh, percentage. And the problem with nitrate, though, is that it's very uh, hazardous, hazardous to skin, and also can cause damage to uh, elastomers and so on gaskets. So it's a it's rather hazardous acid to use. Um, we also have citric acid passivation these days. Um, and uh, this citric acid is, of course, a much milder acid. It's not as hazardous to skin, but it does act as a chelator of iron. It, that is, the citrate ion is able to uh, uh, associate itself with, with iron uh, atoms and thereby and improve that surface uh, chemistry. They also add other additives such as uh, other additional chelators such as uh, EDTA to help um, that. And so citric acid passivation is, is very effective uh, when it comes to passivating uh, stainless steel, but much less hazardous to work with. Yeah, and both of those uh, types of passivation, as far as uh, in an industry perspective, are commonly used by fabricators either in the fabrication arena, in the, in the shop, so to speak, or in the field after tanks have been delivered. And one of the main reasons for using these passivating acids is to remove free iron from the surface of the steel that can come from uh, dust in the shop. You know, some shops, actually a lot of shops are not just stainless steel shops. They have carbon steel in the manufacturing facility. Um, yeah. Carbon steel oftentimes is used for structural supports or, or even fabricating platforms or, or what have you. So if there's any you know, dust in the air in the shop, that, that dust can end up on the surface of the steel. But more importantly, when, when tanks are transported on roads, you know, there's all kinds of brake dust all over roadways that are full of iron. And that kind of dust um, can be on tanks or if equipment is transported over dirt roads, for example, you can have iron containing dust that ends up on the, on the surface of a vessel. So nitric acid um, and citric acid are two common acid cleaners that are used to remove the free iron that's oftentimes on, on the surface of, of new equipment. Or in the case of um, mildly in, embedded iron, you know, something that might be actually embedded in the surface from grinding or, or touching with a tool or a chain or something like that. Yeah, fixturing equipment. Will, yeah, yeah, fixtures or straps on, on trucks. The nitric is going to do a better job of removing that than the citric. Yeah. And now the, um, the citric does have a disadvantage, though. I mean, it's not an oxidizer like nitric is, right? Well, th it's... It's not a real disadvantage. Um, the the um, the idea that an oxidizing acid uh, um, passivates better than a non-oxidizing acid is, uh, I think, that's doesn't have a lot of basis um, given our current understanding of passivation, uh, because the the surface on exposure to oxygen will passivate. 
Um, and so it doesn't rely on the uh, oxidizing process, properties of the acid itself to provide that oxygen, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes sense. Coming up. Uh, there's the perception that cheap stainless is magnetic. And I, I want to point out that that is uh, a fallacy. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, proud partner of global hop breeder and merchant Hopsteiner. As one of the world's largest independently family-owned hop merchants, Hopsteiner has been connecting brewers with the choicest hops and hop products available since 1845. Explore Hopsteiner's unique and exciting hop varieties like Bravo, Calypso, Lemon Drop, Lotus, and Sultana, and more at bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash hops. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their Extreme Flex Beverage Transfer Hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy, clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that like this show, the exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The multi-district event known as the Eastern Technical Conference is back March 24th and 25th at the Atlantic Sands Hotel and Conference Center in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. District Texas meets the same weekend, March 24th through the 26th at the Holiday Inn in Richardson. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal, March 29th. District Rocky Mountain is accepting applications for the newly formed Hoppy Grandma Scholarship until March 31st. The Hoppy Grandma Scholarship honors Carmen Duran by assisting brewers with the tuition of brewing courses to help advance their careers. Details can be found in the scholarship section of the District Rocky Mountain page on the Master Brewers website. 
District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River April 21st and 22nd. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. Now back to the show. One one point I wanted to bring up, um, and as we talk about you know the the uh, issue of iron on the surface of the stainless steel, is that um, iron or less corrosive uh, steel uh, in contact with the stainless can actually poison or or um, bridge that passive layer. So if you have um, a piece of you know common steel wool or a scratch from a screwdriver or some, you know, or just like Ashton said, you know, a piece of brake pad that has iron in it, that contaminating iron can rust. And then that rust from that piece will contaminate the stainless and act as a bridge to further oxidation of the iron rich phases in the stainless. So this is why, um, this this is why we really talk about uh, pass, uh, nitric acid passivation or acid cleaning as part of the passivation step to ensure that we have all these contaminants off the surface that could compromise the stainless later. Yeah, and that what John's referring to. Some people have a, a problem with the term air passivation, but really the the net result of this thorough cleaning and removing the obstacles to the formation of the passive film really is air passivation. And the, the thickness of this passive film is literally a couple atoms thick. It's not, it's not like a physical rust oxide that you could scrape off with a, a fingernail yeah. or a piece of you know, grinding paper. It, it's, it's really a, a molecular film on the surface of the steel that, that happens spontaneously when the steel is in a condition that it can react with oxygen in the air. That's right. And that, and you're saying that happens instantly. That you don't need hours or minutes for that. Right, it's instant. And is more time going to give you a better layer, or are you going to no. get what you're going to get in seconds? In yeah, it happens. And as Ashton says, it's only a few molecules thick, so it is a it is a molecular barrier. Um, it's not a surface coating, um, and uh, so yeah. And this is why we talk about. Um, iron poisoning uh, and other aspects of you know the and I guess we could get into the aspects of how corrosion happens on stainless steel uh, in light of this mole- you know thin molecular barrier. What were you going to say, Ashton? Well, I, I sense the question coming from John that that's poking at the idea that that air passivation requires time, 
and you know th- there is a lot of of that referred to in you know in the practical body of of knowledge and i think part of that that time factor is actually a drawing time and that's especially true when a tank is cleaned on the inside you know oftentimes the the internal relative humidity of that of that tank is very very high so sometimes it takes quite a long time for the surface of steel to dry if it's an enclosed tank so i, I really think that the the air passivation time factor is more of a drawing time than anything else just to allow you know the surface of the steel to actually be in contact with the atmosphere yeah although most uh, you know, a water film is is not a barrier to oxygen, so it can diffuse through it. But yeah, that's that. That I think Ashton is right. That's where that idea of a time factor is really coming from. Is you know to give the the tank time to dry before you start using it. And just a springboard off of a word that you used earlier, John. You used the word poison, and sometimes there's mystery rust on stainless steel. And nothing seems to be odd, but if the tank was fabricated in such a way that um, a different alloy was welded to the, let's, let's say you have a tank that's jacketed, and you can't see the the outside of the actual tank wall itself, and that there was something like carbon steel, just common steel welded as a support on the tank, if there's not a poison pad between the the common steel and the stainless steel, then that welding on that common steel can can cause corrosion on the inside of the tank because of what's welded to the outside of the tank ah yeah that's right yeah Hmm. pretty interesting okay well we've already uh gotten into this a little bit but let's talk more about what exactly degrades or removes that passive layer over time what are some examples of things that can do that well the big one is chlorides um, chlorides, whether in in any form, whether it's chlorine, um, you know, dis- residual disinfectant in the water, or you know, uh, salt chloride, um, hypochlorides, um, and various you know cleaning um, cleaning compounds often t- contain chlorides. Um, all of these can uh, react with that passive film, and essentially, you know change that passive chromium oxide to a chromium chloride compound which is not passive so now you have essentially a hole in that molecular barrier and that is uh, often depending on the the um, the liquid you know that's that's in the tank that's often enough to cause corrosion at that site and Pitting corrosion is the most common form of corrosion on stainless steel. Uh, is again where you get some agent, whether it's a chloride or a scratch, or something that that bridges or or breaks that molecular barrier um, and allows access and then and, and ordinary corrosion. I guess you could say of the iron-rich phases beneath. Yeah, and, and you use the word hole in the passive film and. If you have a liquid in the tank that has chloride in it, you can quite literally end up with a hole in your stainless steel. One, one story to, to tell here that's kind of interesting, when I was at Mueller, we, we had supplied some very large uh, so-called bioreactors, basically large fermenters for the production of um, a compound in baby food. It was actually an algal, algal fermentation. 
and they were producing um, unsaturated fatty acids, omega-3 type fatty acids in the fermentation. And they had, they had holes developing in their tanks. So of course, you know, like brewers always blame the maltster where, you know, in the pharmaceutical companies, they always blame the stainless steel supplier. Well, it turned out that the growth media that they were using in these vessels was molasses based and they switched suppliers and all of a sudden they had chloride in their, in their feedstock that they didn't know about. And the chlorides literally um, removed the passive film on the surface in spots and ended up with act, ended up with active corrosion cells that literally had the effect of, of making holes in the tank. Yeah, little pinholes. What, what remedy is there for that? I mean, do you have to get in there and actually like repolish the tank and passivate again, or is it not even that simple? Well, if you catch it, actually, they didn't have it so bad that there were holes all the way through the tank. They had pits that would have eventually led to holes in the tank, which is actually not uncommon for like hot adjunct tanks, for example, that might have chlorides from the um, the starch hydrolysis. But the practical remedy is if you spot uh, pits like that, the pits can be ground out, you know, with uh, with grinding tools, you know, abrasives, and then the tank can be repassivated. And if the pit is deep enough that it's actually a problem, you know, where it's going to compromise the structural integrity of the tank, the pit can be ground out, and then you could you could weld, you know, onto that area, um, you know, plug welds, or you could weld a patch over it and then grind it and then and repassivate. So there there are remedies to that type of problem. Okay, and then I guess um, any other causes we want to talk about that remove that passive layer? I mean, I assume any other kind of surface damage or physical abrasion, or, or I'm sure there's other chemical reactions that, that would cause a, a problem as well, right? Yeah, yeah. John, the biggie, the, the chlorides are, are so bad. I mean, they're so severe that stainless steel suppliers oftentimes have chloride disclaimers in their in their sales documents because that, that's a real real problem but another common thing that a lot of people overlook is is human intervention so if you jump in a tank to clean something or to you know check on somebody in your mash ton or your, your brew kettle or whatever and you've got dirt and debris on your shoes that type of scratching on the surface can remove a passive film and you don't even know it happened because you don't you're not really paying attention to that and then all the problems that john previously mentioned um can happen just like with the chloride damage and you might have trace amounts of iron on your shoes or anything else right exactly right. yeah how about uh, i've read that that passive layer can even be damaged um just from simply from the expansion and contraction uh that vessels experience over as they go through high and low temperature cycles is that true I I don't have any basis to say yes or no. Um, I, it doesn't seem very plausible to me, but maybe it is. I don't know. Fair enough. What, if anything, is different when you're passivating brand new equipment versus equipment that's already in service and, and it's you know a routine situation? I would say this, the soil load is quite different. The, the types of debris that might be on a new vessel is really, really different than what you're going to see in normal brewing operations. So the, the types of, I'm going to call it stuff, the types of coatings that may be on a new tank include, you know, petroleum films, you know, those could be lubricants, um, you know, machining oils. They can be these adhesive films, which are really problematic. It, we had, over the years, Mueller has had 
these mystery challenges with adhesive films and the the companies that sell these films to protect stainless steel act like they've never heard of these problems but if you <laughs> google adhesive film residue stainless steel you'll find problems going back to 30 years or more from companies that have used these films so those are not normal films that you have in a brewery yeah i the 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 beer wort itself is not corrosive to stainless steel um so you know the then even though it's uh, beer work can be low ph and you may have even a sour beer going on you know with lactic acid though that those organic acids are not very corrosive to stainless steel um what what is what can be corrosive are your cleaning chemicals uh your cip process chemicals um and so that's why um you know hot rinse burst rinse i mean rinsing is very important when uh cleaning because you need you often need to get these uh chlorinated compounds you know re- totally removed uh that's that and that's really where the a lot of the concerns on stainless come from um going back to what ashton was saying you know with uh these uh adhesive films we've we've touched on pitting corrosion uh, mechanism briefly um we've talked about stress corrosion there's also crevice corrosion and all of these uh corrosion mechanisms what what's happening you know, on a very localized scale, you know, micro scale, is that you have a, a a large passive region, you know, chromium oxide molecular barrier, um, immediately adjacent to a non-passive region, and so at that interface, there is a large electrochemical difference, and that's where that corrosion can start happening. And then, you know, the because of that higher energy, that that chromium oxide layer can be breached there right at the, say the edge of a, an adhesive film and then that will start pitting and once you form a pit now you're creating geometry differences that also increase the electrochemical difference of that pit to the surrounding area and you accelerate that uh that corrosive energy so um that that is the primary mechanism when we talk about adhesive film damage or say oil or other um, contaminants on the surface you know non-metallic contaminants is that you're setting up these interface uh, regions where corrosion can occur yeah you mentioned uh, you know films on tanks john Uh, protective films are one example of that another set of examples would be tape you know sometimes tape is used oh yeah the label takes and people oftentimes either don't even notice that there's a piece of tape or another common problem is within stainless steel pipe systems if they're pipe hangers that are not properly designed you can have corrosion underneath a pipe hanger which can be kind of a bad surprise if you remove a hanger and notice that you know there's a corroded part of your pipe system yeah yeah, having like galvanized uh, pipe hangers uh, in contact with stainless steel can be bad because the that the chromium or the stainless steel is much more corrosion resistant than the zinc. The zinc corrodes away you know, under condensation, for example, and then leaving bare steel in contact with that stainless, you know, with condensation, and now you've got that iron contamination uh, mechanism available to it. 
and that's an example of galvanic corrosion where basically you've got a battery cell set up that becomes you can have very rapid uh, degradation of material under those sets of conditions right I want to. We'll get into sort of the the frequency, uh, you know, of passivation here in a second. But I, I guess I want to ask: Are there any special occasions when brewers should be sure to passivate? After welding is probably the biggest. So repairs and stuff like that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, as as we were alluding to, most of the uh, brewing, I mean, you know, work not corrosive. Uh, brewing. Uh, CIP chemicals can be, but if you've got good rinsing in place and, you know, you could good quality control there, you're probably fine. Um, and then... And then also, know, I guess, you know, whenever someone enters a tank, like Ashton mentioned, too. Yeah. You that, would be, on, that would be a time to make sure you're yeah. passivated, right? Well, yeah, especially if you notice that somebody scratched it up. Um, you know, may, and... Uh, but if they, you know, if you put on soft booties and, and you're clean and then shouldn't be an issue. Um, yeah, I mean, the stainless is not, you know, uh, fragile, but, um, it, you're, you are trying just to err on the side of caution. Well, I've always taken the approach of more frequent, you know, less acid more frequently. Whereas, you know, there are other folks out there who say, oh, well, we just, we do 9% every year or twice a year or whatever. Talk about that. I wouldn't get caught up in the strength of your cleaning acid so much as what are you really trying to accomplish? So I think in your, in your approach, John, if you're cleaning frequently with a more mild solution, I think what really is happening there is that you're, you're keeping a buildup from from forming on the surface of the steel and that that clean surface is allowed to air passivate every single time after cleaning and you know the passivation layer only reforms if there's a break in the layer but let's say that you had a, a formation of a mineral scale on equipment and that mineral scale over time led to the degradation of the passive layer well by removing that that mineral scale and allowing the, the passive film to reform you're allowing the you know, the, the metal to remain healthy over time, you know, compare that to a tank that's been neglected where you've, you know, gone a year between cleaning and now that, that tank might have a very heavy film of calcium carbonate if you have very hard, you know, limestone water in the tank. Or beer stone, or, yeah. Or, yeah, beer stone calcium oxalate. Um, so you're going to have to have maybe a longer, hotter, more intense cleaning and that may or may not involve stronger chemical. But I think that that situation is where some brewers get into the mindset of repassivation is something that has to be done because you've neglected you know the the equipment over time and maybe the passive film has been compromised yeah yeah i think the i think that's most likely cases where uh beer stone or some other mineral film is built up and then you require stronger chemicals uh to clean it to, to remove it and there, thereby a, a stronger uh, propensity for having damaged the passive layer, and so then repassivation uh, it would might would be a good idea at that point. But as you say, John, if you're you're keeping it clean all along with uh, milder acid rinses and you know just in good inspection and so on, then uh, repassivation 
you know, as a matter of course, once a year probably isn't necessary. It may, it may not be a bad idea, but it's probably not necessary. I'll confess, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Springfield Brewing Company and Paul Mueller Company owns Springfield Brewing Company until the very end of 2011. And the brewery was built in 1997 as a showcase for Mueller equipment. So we've got quite a lot of Mueller stainless steel at Springfield Brewing Company. And not one single tank has been repassivated in the last 21 years. And our, our equipment really looks pretty darn new for being 21 years old. So it really depends on how the equipment's been maintained and used over the life of the equipment. And, you know, that, that life of the equipment's going to dictate if you really have to repassivate or not. I know you guys probably want to talk about magnetism. Let's hear about that. Well, Ashton and I were talking earlier today about the uh, cheap stainless question. And one aspect of that is magnetism. Uh, there's the perception that cheap stainless is magnetic. And I, I want to point out that that is uh, a fallacy that um, when you cold work austenitic stainless steel, even if it's 316L, um, what you're doing is you're, you, what, not what you're doing, but part of what happens is that you end up aligning the grains and the, uh, and the atoms in the steel, which makes it more magnetic. So a cold worked stainless steel tank is going to display magnetism, even if it's you know pure 316L or 304L duplex, what have you. Um, the, the forming operation is going to induce molecular alignment and, uh, and it will display magnetism. It won't have the same snappiness as, say, carbon steel, but it will be magnetic, even though it is stainless and is passive and et cetera. Yeah, so doing the, the old, you know, take a magnet and put it on your tank to determine if it's real or Memorex, you, you might get some misleading data if you don't really know what you're observing because you might have a magnet stick to a stainless steel tank that's really mildly magnetic and, and not an indicator of some type of, you know, ferritic steel that should not be in your brewery. Right, yeah. It's not a indica good indicator of alloy. You know, the fact is, you know, global pressures on pricing are going to keep cheap, cheaper equipment floating in the U.S. And like I said earlier, a lot of that cheaper equipment is cheaper because of labor. But for, for companies that are concerned about what they're actually buying, one, one non-invasive and non-destructive method of, of uh, determining your alloy is to use an X-ray gun. They're, they're very, very expensive, but they can be rented. And there are testing companies that will perform tests that are non-destructive using a, an X-ray gun that can tell you the, uh, the alloy composition of steel. So if there's anybody out there that's you know, wanting to buy something from overseas but concerned about it, there are ways of determining what you're buying without you know, sending your tank to a destructive testing lab. Yeah, that's a good point. Ashton, you've got another watch out that a lot of brewers probably haven't thought about in regards to water chemistry. What's that? Well, one one thought, you know, there, there's two beer styles right now that are, you know, pretty popular. New England style oh, yeah. IPAs or, or hazy IPAs. And then, you know, the so-called gozas that I, I call them so-called because a lot of, you know, the kettle sours are probably not real true to style for goza. but Goza and New England IPAs have something in common. 
and that's they use they use chloride containing salts in their formulation. So oftentimes we say that there's really nothing in a brewery that's really going to be detrimental to 304 or 316 stainless steel. But if you're adding uh, sodium chloride to your, your Goza, or if you're adding calcium chloride to your New England IPA, uh, if you make a mess and don't clean it up, you could end up with uh, corrosion that, that does uh, take away the passive film. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And, uh, you know, rinsing clean and good CIP is your, is your friend there. I mean, it's when you have, you know, evaporation uh, concentration uh, of, say, you know, high, high chloride wort or water on the surface um, that can compromise the passivity in that local spot uh, you know, on that watermark. And then that can be, you know, over time that can develop into a pit. That was John Palmer and Ashton Lewis dishing out some solid practical advice and doing a little myth busting here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Can't stop, can't stop, can't stop.